Welcome to another episode of The Chef Educator, the show that provides and discusses various teaching tools, tips, and techniques for the culinary, hospitality, and pastry arts educator. And now, coming to you through the airways from Palm Beach County, Florida, here is your host, doctor, professor, and chef, Mr. Colin Rowe. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of The Chef Educator. A little time has passed since my last episode, since I have been so preoccupied by my newest podcast titled Culinary School Stories, which is a weekly podcast with engaging interviews that shares the stories of people around the world that have an association with a culinary school in some way. Each episode brings you the best stories from around the food service world, from people who have been impacted, influenced, and or changed for good or for bad, from their culinary school experience. You know, from current students and alumni to faculty and administrators, this interview-style podcast allows for longer, more in-depth, open discussions about issues, stories, and tales surrounding culinary school. And if you've not checked it out yet, I hope you will. You can listen for free on your favorite podcast players, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, or you can do, listen to it on the show's website. And here's the link, www.culinaryschoolstories.com. That's it, culinaryschoolstories.com. And I'll put a link in these show notes in case you're driving or doing something right now and you want to look back on it and get that link. The podcast also has its own YouTube channel where you can also listen and view kind of the full episodes, as well as I've posted a lot of highlight clips there. They're in the form of short videos where you can view, you know, just little, you know, highlights pulled out from each of those episodes. And to find that, we can get it from my website, but also just log on to YouTube and just search culinary school stories, punch that into the search feature and you will find it. No problem. All right, so let's get started on today's episode. So today I want to talk about the brain, brain, how it works, how we learn, and I'll probably do this into a, you know, several episodes, carry this over because a lot of information here. It's fascinating and it'll make us better teachers. So as we all know, learning is a complicated process and several thousand years ago, the primary job of the human brain was, you know, a couple, three things. One, to figure out how to find food. Another thing was safety, you know, avoid getting eaten by a predator, which also included finding a safe place to sleep. You know, we had to use our brain to find a place that we could feel safe at night. And the third thing was to help us find a mate so we can keep the species going. That was the three basic things of the brain. Now, today, in addition to those basic human functions, our brains are inundated with other facts and tasks that need to be learned. And unfortunately, the evolution of the biological structures, such as our brain, was not allowed to change or hasn't changed at such a rapid pace in which our society keeps changing. Our brains are still kind of stuck in the past. The good news is that although our brains have not changed significantly in the past several hundred years, our understanding of how our brains work has and it's now light years ahead of where it, you know, we were only a few short decades ago. And this is thanks to neuroscientists 
who know so much about the brain and how it learns, and they keep studying this all the time, so it's fascinating. Unfortunately, these neuroscientists do not usually present their discoveries to those involved in teaching, like us. And neither teachers nor instructors have the time to sift through the voluminous amounts of scientific research that's currently available on this. But fortunately, there is one person who has been sharing the information for some time now, and her name is Judy Willis, Dr. Willis. And she used to be a practicing neurologist before she became a teacher. And she has written numerous brain-based teaching articles and strategies, as well as books on this topic. And I will list a few of my references in the show notes, including some by her. But two books I want to mention right off the bat for you are How We Learn by Benedict Carey and The New Science of Learning. And that's by Terry Doyle and Todd Zakarzik. Two of these guys, both famous in, in the learning higher education world on how to be better teachers. Anyway, they wrote this, this, this book. Now, this subject of how we learn will probably be the topic of, as I mentioned, the next couple episodes here on the Chef Educator Podcast. But I wanted to start right out in this episode talking about the brain itself and how it works. And for that, I'll be referencing the book titled Upgrade Your Teaching. And that was written by Judy Willis. And it was, a, a, she co-authored it along with Jay Mateague, another famous name in higher ed and learning and how the brain works. So, you know, comp- putting these two together, it's an awesome book. And I have it right here. And I'm going to actually read some passages from it and refer to it during this presentation. A couple of, art- of the articles here to, you know, make sure I get it right and hopefully inspire you to maybe buy these books or go check them out in your libraries or download them as eBooks and and read the full book. So, you know, there's a couple of things going on here. Now, as a result of breakthroughs in neuroscience research, including, you know, neuroimaging and neuroelectric monitoring of neurons and how they fire and, you know, looking at these brain cells, we now can observe how the brain responds during learning. These technologies provide visible representations of the brain's response to instructional practices, uh, revealing neurological activity as you know, information travels from the body's you know, intake systems, you know, the sensory intakes, our eyes, ears, through attention and emotional filters, which I'm going to talk about, and these are key here, into forming memory linkages and activities in the highest cognitive networks of our executive function. But to get there, there's a lot as a journey, and we're going to talk about that and how it application to us as teachers, how we can get that information from our context, you know, our content that we're trying to teach our students. How are we going to get that into our students' brain where it's you know going to solidify? It's going to stick there. Now, these new insights into how the human brain learns makes it clear that many of the learning practices that faculty have used in the past and that some, you know, truthfully continue to use, they're highly ineffective. They're inefficient. They're just plain wrong. They don't work. So why are we doing them? And what we now know too is that better learning does not always require more effort or more time. 
Rather, we only need to effectively align how the brain naturally learns with the demands of our classrooms. We put the two together, it's going to happen. Okay, so let me ask you, what does it mean to say you have learned something? You know, oh, I learned that. Well, neuroscience researchers have shown that when you learn something new, there is a physical change in your brain. You have approximately 80 billion brain cells. And when you learn something new, some of those brain cells establish connections with other brain cells and they form a new network of cells. And that network represents the new learning that has taken place. So it's actually a a physical change in our brains. And when frequently activated, these new networks have the potential to become long-term memories. In fact, every time you use or practice the newly learned information or skill, the connections between these cells get stronger and recalling the information becomes easier. And establishing connections is like blazing a trail. Think about you're in the jungle and you got your machete out. It's a huge amount of work at first to get that trail started, right? But every time the trail is used, it becomes more established and easier to follow. I tell my students, it's like walking across a field with grass, you know, a little more simpler one. You step down and next day the grass pops right back up, right? But if you keep walking, eventually you wear down the grass, you're down into the dirt, you got a path there. But think about it from a jungle point of view. If it's all overgrown, it's a lot of work. It's like hacking away, hacking away, trying to make it happen so you can at least make an opening and eventually you'll make a trail. So this is what happens. And I try to explain this to my students right on day one. So let them know that, yeah, learning is work. Yes, it's going to be challenging at times, but it will get easier the more we do it. Now, at the level of neurons, establishing and then maintaining the trail is called long-term potentiation. And as a result of long-term potentiation, something that was at one time new to you, such as tying your shoe, now becomes routine. Long-term potentiation is a neurological description of how habits and long-term memories are formed. Any practice knowledge or skill becomes a more permanent part of memory and will be easily available to you when you need it even if you don't need it for weeks or months at a time. It's how once we learn that knowledge, two plus two is four, you know, simple math, challenging at the time. But now, you know, as adults, it's easy, right? Even if we don't even do that addition, you know, we could ask us years later, we're still going to be able to know because it's been ingrained in us. We have learned it. So now let's dig into the specific parts of the brain so we can see how they individually work and what happens when they are all used together. Now, although the brain is an amazing organ, it's not equipped to process the billions of bits of information that bombard it every second. And there's filters in our brains that protect it from becoming overloaded. And these filters control the information flow so that only approximately 2,000 bits of information per second enter the brain. And we might think that's a lot, but you think about all the stimuli and the signs that you're passing, the things you're hearing and what's going on and we're taking it in through our eyes and our ears and our nose, hitting our brain all at once. This is not a lot. So these filters are the key and that's what I want to start us talking 
about. So all learning begins with sensory information. Our brains are constantly bombarded with information from the body's sensory receptors. Continuous data reports flow from specialized sensory systems. This would be our hearing, our vision, our taste, our touch, our smell, and from the sensory nerve endings in our muscles and our joints and our internal organs. All of these things are capturing sensories, right? And they're sending them to our brain. Well, these receptors do not evaluate the data. They just transmit a constant status report. And of the millions of bits of sensory data available each second, only about 1% are emitted to the brain, whose various areas are associated with different functions. Now, once the information enters the brain's processing system, it is relayed by numerous what we'll call switching stations. Ultimately, conscious or higher-level processing takes place in the outer covering of the brain called the cortex. Now, one reason for restricting the enormous amount of sensory input is that the brain is rather stingy with its mental effort because it needs to preserve its limited fuel. Unlike other organs, the brain has no stored nutrients or stored oxygen. Like think about our other muscles in our legs. The average brain weighs only about three pounds, but it is so dense and metabolically active that it requires over 20% of the oxygen and nutrients the body consumes. Now, from a survival standpoint, it makes good sense for the brain to be a couch potato. You know, it should be lazy because it doesn't want to burn up any wasted fuel unless it really needs it. Now, because it is impossible for the brain to consciously sort through all the sensory information that is available to it every second, it is programmed to prefer selected input. So to deal with this selection, the brain has a sensory intake filter called the reticular activating system or the RAS which is in the lower part of the posterior brain, in the brainstem, towards the back of our neck, you know, our head. This RAS determines what the brain attends to and what information gets in. Its involuntary programming gives priority to sensory information that is most critical for mammals to survive in the unpredictable wild. You know, think about when we were like cavemen and women. Any change in the expected pattern can signal a threat of death, or alternatively, a source of nutrients that can help ensure survival. This hardwired criterion of selection for entry is essentially the same for humans as for other mammals. The brain basically gives priority admission to sensory input about change in the expected pattern. What is new, what is different, what has changed, what is unexpected. And this, well, jumping ahead here, is some tricks or techniques or tips that we can do or use in our classrooms to get our information through our students' you know, gatekeeper here, these filters, so that it gets into the brain. This is why we change up our lectures. We add surprise. We add curiosity. Now, students are often criticized for not paying attention in our classes, but we now know that failure to focus on a teacher's instruction does not mean the student's brain is inactive. A student's RAS is always paying attention to and letting in sensory input, but not necessarily the input being taught at that same time. 
So they're paying attention, just not may not be to us. They're paying attention to other things, other sensory, you know, input that's coming in. So this first filter that data passes through when entering our brain, again, is the reticular activating system, the RAS. And it's, again, located at the back of our brains, the brainstem, and it receives input from sensory nerves that come from nerve endings in your eyes, your ears, your mouth, face, skin, muscles, internal organs, and they all meet at the top of the spinal cord. This sensory message must pass through the RAS to gain entry to our higher thinking brains. So one of the things to do if you know we want this information to get through is you know we want to focus our attention on the sensory input that is most valuable and important to attend to at the moment. The important input will make it into the thinking brain. So if you feel overwhelmed, your reactive brain will take over. Then, when you experience, focus on, or remember, will no longer be in your control. It's the difference between reflecting on and reacting to your world. Now, deep within the brain is the emotionally responsive limbic system, which includes two structures, one basically on each side of the brain, and that's called the amygdala, which directs communication between the lower brain and the upper brain. The lower brain is the more primitive control center that directs bodily functions that are largely automatic, such as breathing and digestion. Now, we don't have to think about how to breathe. It just happens. And also, in this section, they take care of reactions that are largely involuntary, such as the fight or flight response. And we'll talk about that because that's key to us as teachers. Now, the upper brain, known as the prefrontal cortex, is where memory is constructed and neural networks of executive functions guide voluntary behavior with reflective rather than reactive choices. This is where we want to get our information in the student's brain. Now, the amygdala can be thought of as a switching station for traffic flow between these upper and lower stations in the brain. Think about like a train station. You know, it's going to direct information comes in, goes to the upper brain or goes to the lower brain. So after this sensory information is selected to enter through the RAS, which we talked about, okay, well, that's the first filter, then it gets to this amygdala. The level of activity taking place in the amygdala determines whether the information will travel down to the lower involuntary reactive brain or up to the reflective and memory-storing thinking brain, which is the prefrontal cortex. In other words, once sensory information enters the brain, it is routed to one of two areas. One, the prefrontal cortex, what we might call the thinking brain, which can consciously process and reflect on information. Or, number two, the lower automatic brain, what we might call the reactive brain, which reacts to information instinctively rather than through thinking. The prefrontal cortex is actually only 17% of your brain. That's the top. The rest makes up the reactive brain or the lower. So it's not much up at the top there. So information perceived as possibly threatening is directed through the amygdala to the reactive lower brain. Input passing through the amygdala to the prefrontal cortex finds it the home of logical thought, judgment, uh, emotional self-management, 
and other executive functions needed to generate more accurate predictions about new information and direct more considered responses. So when a mammal is in a state of actual or perceived stress, new information does not freely pass through the amygdala's filter to gain access to that prefrontal cortex. Instead, input is diverted to the lower reactive brain, which has a limited set of behavioral responses that can be summarized as involuntary survival responses to a perceived threat. In fact, it is these primitive mammalian responses that we are likely to observe in students when they are highly stressed by fear, frustration, alienation, anxiety, boredom. This is what happens with our students. And this could be things like, you know, failure to uh, do well on a test or a subject or when they're asked to do lessons or drills they've already mastered or when they may think they're irrelevant, they're bored, it's just busy work. So here are some examples of specific school-related stressors that can trigger the amygdala to send input to the lower reactive brain. Anxiety related to speaking in class, answering questions or oral presentations. You know, fear of public speaking is one of the, you know, the biggest fears people have. So we think about that as a teacher. When we, if we don't prepare them, we just hit them on the spot. We think everybody's an extrovert. Someone in there could, that could make a lot of stress for them. Fear of being wrong, physical differences, language differences, test-taking anxiety, frustration with material students believe exceeds their understanding, or feeling overwhelmed by the demands of school assignments. Inability to effectively organize time in response to the demands of academics, extracurricular, out-of-school chores, their jobs. I know in culinary, most of our students are working full-time jobs, some 40, 50, 60 hours a week, and trying to be full-time students. That's got to put some stress and pressure on them. You know, feeling of isolation or lack of acceptance by their peers or lack of acceptance perceived by their teachers. During these states of stress, Students are likely to display involuntary lower brain responses, which manifest into acting out or zoning out behaviors. So when you're not stressed by negative emotions, you can control what information makes it into your brain. By calming your brain, you can control which sensory data from your environment your brain lets in or keeps out and influence which information gets admitted to your prefrontal cortex. So when the stress levels are down and our students' interest is high, the most valuable information tends to pass into their thinking brains. However, when they are anxious, sad, frustrated, or bored, brain filters direct that sensory information from the world around them into their reactive brain. These reactive brain systems do one of three things with the information. They either have the student ignore it, or the student will fight against it as a negative experience. And this sends signals that may cause the student to act inappropriately. Or the third thing is they would avoid it. And this usually causes the student to daydream. If information gets routed to this reactive brain, it is unlikely that the brain will truly process the information or remember it. Okay, now let's jump to the limbic system. So after all the information coming in through your senses gets through the RAS, it travels to the sensory intake centers of your brain. 
new information that becomes memory is eventually stored in the sensory cortex areas, which is located in the brain lobes that are each specialized to analyze data from one of your five senses. These data must pass through your brain's emotional core, the limbic system, where your amygdala and your hippocampus evaluate whether this information is useful because it will help you physically survive or bring you pleasure. So we're going to talk about these two specific areas. So let me just tell you a little bit about the amygdala. This is like a central train routing station. You know, it's a system for routing information um, based on your emotional state. So this is not the, you know, the reptilian brain, which is the RAS, which it comes in and it either says it goes to the lower or the upper. Now it's gone past that. Now it has to do with emotions, not physical things. So when you experience negative emotions like fear, anxiety, or even boredom, your amygdala's filter takes up excessive amounts of your brain's available nutrients and oxygen. And this puts your brain into survival mode, which blocks entry of any new information into your prefrontal cortex. For example, suppose your day starts off badly. You overslept, had no time for breakfast, and you got too many things to do before school. Okay, So this student is worried about these things, plus maybe their friends, they're going to worry about whether their friends are going to sit with them at lunch, and they're afraid that the mean kid in their class will say hurtful things to them, make fun of them. It's not only that student's body that suffers on this kind of day, but their brain is also stressed. And this stress closes off all the pathways through the RAS and the amygdala that directs information into their thinking brain and memory centers. And unless that student can restore a positive mood, they won't learn much on that particular school day. But if that student or maybe the teacher can turn things around to help that student become calm and focused, their amygdala will decide to send new information to their prefrontal cortex. So what can they do or what can we try to help them do? Well, slow down and take a moment to reflect instead of react when you take a test at school or you face social conflicts with friends, you know, controlling those emotions. You might take a deep breath and visualize yourself in a peaceful place. You know, another technique that helps you choose what to do with your emotions, sometimes only humans can do, is to imagine you're directing yourself in a play. You are the director sitting in a balcony seat watching an actor, the emotional you, on stage. What advice would you give to your emotionally filled actor on the stage if he or she had been maybe pushed by a classmate and wanted to hit him back? The technique helps you move away from your reactive brain and tap into your thinking brain, where memories that might help you are stored. And as I mentioned, teachers can play a role too. If your teacher sets up lessons to include some fun activities so you'll feel good during a lesson, your amygdala will add a neurochemical enhancement, like a memory chip that strengthens the staying power of any information presented in the lesson. So people actually remember more on what they hear and read if they are in a positive emotional state when they hear or read it. 
So because the brain seeks to preserve its limited energy resources, it directs its behaviors based on the probability that the effort expended will result in success. So understanding the survival programming provides new perspective about students' choices and responses. It is now evident that low intelligence, lack of initiative, or laziness may not be the most likely reasons students don't always remain fully attentive, remember everything that's taught, uh, persevere at tasks, or manage their emotions. A more fundamental explanation for non-productive student behaviors is rooted in the brain's design, which focuses sensory intake, reacts to stress with survival responses, and preserves its resources and minimizes outputs of effort. The brain's expenditure of voluntary effort is linked to the expectations of positive outcomes. If students fail after repeated efforts to achieve goals and academic challenges, well, their willingness to put forth effort is going to decline. These negative self-expectations can grow progressively year after year with repeated failures, further compromising the likelihood of academic success. This is where psychologist Carol Dweck comes into play. You may know her. She coined the phrase fixed mindset, which characterizes the convictions of learners who do not believe that their efforts can lead to achievement and is therefore, you know, fruitless. This contrasts with the other thing she came up with, which was the growth mindset, which attributes success to effort, perseverance, and use of strategies. In survival terms, withholding effort when past experiences predict failure is beneficial. You know, we, our brain is pretty smart, right? And then think about it from an animal's point of view. Consider a fox living in a region where prey is limited and whose den is surrounded by three hills. One of the hills is particularly steep and covered by dense underbrush. And this is where the prey hides. To repeatedly chase prey up the hill is to exert effort, in this case, energy, without the likelihood of achieving the goal of an energy-restoring meal. In the interest of survival, the fox's brain ultimately develops a mindset that deters it from chasing prey up that particular hill. As students' efforts towards achieving a goal repeatedly fail, they might develop the fixed mindset that their intelligence and skills are predetermined, limited, and unchangeable. They become less likely to expend the effort necessary to persevere on challenging learning tasks, and they fall behind academically. Without the needed foundation of knowledge and skills to understand subsequent instruction, the gap widens further, and they become even more susceptible to the stress-related blockades. Now, the brain's programming promotes survival of the animal and the species. This programming has guided mammalian development and adaptation for survival in the unpredictable and perilous environments in which most mammals live. The human brain continues to follow two prime survival directives, to seek patterns and pleasure. These directives drive the brain's memory, effort, and actions. Patterning refers to the brain's meaningful categorization and organization of sensory data based on relationships or commonalities. The brain stores new information by linking it to patterns of related information already stored in natural circuits of existing memory. 
these clusters of related information stored together in memory are what psychologist Pajot described as cognitive frameworks or schemas. It is through this pattern matching with previously constructed and related neural networks that our brains recognize and make meaning of the thousands of bits of sensory input received every second. By linking information newly stored in memory networks with relevant prior knowledge, the brain can sift through the barrage of ongoing input to make sense of the world. Storing information in memory by relationship patterning allows for easier, more efficient retrieval of information, which is essential to interpreting and predicting and enacting the best response to something new. All animals must make predictions to survive. For example, based on the frequent links between cold temperatures and the behavior of the local rabbits in a hunting territory, a fox's brain might establish a memory pattern. The memory would result from frequent repetition of the pattern of cold temperatures linked to rabbits entering their dens earlier in the evening. Therefore, when a cold evening occurs, the fox might predict that the time to catch its dinner is earlier than usual perhaps just as the sun goes down. Or a deer may walk through an area where they've seen an ambush before by a wolf or a lion. So that becomes a pattern. So now when they go to that area, they will avoid it or they'll go fast to go through it because they they have a pattern that there's danger in that particular spot. When presented with novel sensory inputs such as change or unfamiliar questions or choices, Our brains rapidly self-scan the related patterns for those that match the new information. Our brains activate these stored memories to relate to the new input, to make predictions and choose actions guided by those memory patterns. Predictions is successful whenever the brain activates enough information from a pattern memory category to interpret the pattern of the new input. For example, if you see the number sequence 2, 4, 6, 8, you predict the next number will be 10 because you recognize the pattern of counting by twos. Depending on the result of the prediction, the existing patterns relied upon to make the prediction are extended, fortified, or revised. You know, we learn from going through these patterns. Through observations, experiences, and feedback, the brain increasingly learns about the world and can make progressively more accurate predictions about what will come next and how to respond to new information problems or choices. This ability for predictions and guided by pattern recognition is a foundation for successful literacy, numeracy, test-taking, appropriate social-emotional behavior, and understanding. Successful predictions are one of the brain's best problem-solving strategies. To ensure that we will repeat the action arising from accurate predictions, The experience of making accurate predictions stimulates a pleasure response mediated through the release of the neurochemical dopamine, which is what I want to talk about now, the brain's pleasure drug. If you know pleasure, you know dopamine. Seeking and experiencing pleasure are innate survival features of the brain. When dopamine is released through the brain, it promotes feelings of pleasure a deep satisfaction, and a drive to continue or repeat the actions that triggered the pleasurable response. Dopamine is one of the brain's most important neurotransmitters as well. 
Messages connected to new information travel from neuron to neuron as tiny electrical currents. And like electricity, these messages need wiring to carry them. But they're at gaps, and they call the synapses, right, between the branches that connect nerve cells. And there's no wiring at these gaps. Chemical neurotransmitters like dopamine carry electrical messages across those gaps from one neuron to another. This transmission is crucial to your brain's capacity to process new information. Your brain releases extra dopamine when an experience is enjoyable. As positive emotions cause dopamine to travel to more parts of your brain, additional neurons are activated. Thus, a boost in dopamine not only increases your own sense of pleasure, but also increases other neurotransmitters that enhance alertness, memory, and executive function in the prefrontal cortex. So making correct predictions is one of the strongest dopamine elevators. The dopamine reward response to making accurate predictions promotes survival in mammals because the intrinsic pleasures that come from accurate predictions drives the brain to remember and use memory circuits that have guided previously successful predictions. Experiencing accurate predictions and the resulting satisfaction of goal achievement leads the brain to remember the related choices, behaviors, the actions, the decisions, and responses, and to seek more opportunities to repeat them. To further optimize students' success in school, you can engage the dopamine reward response to motivate the brain to put forth the mental effort needed for new learning. This is true even for things that are not immediately recognized as relevant or pleasurable. Academic effort can be stimulated by tapping into the brain's programming to focus attention and apply effort when pleasure is the anticipated expectation. So, in other words, certain activities such as interacting with friends, laughing, physical activity, listening to someone read to you, and acting kindly all increase dopamine levels. You'll boost your learning if you get them into your day. So as teachers, we can try to get that into our students' day. Okay, now I want to talk about neuroplasticity. Cool word. A long-held misconception asserted that brain growth stops with birth, only to be followed by a lifetime of brain cell death. Now we know that although most of the neurons where information is stored are present at birth, there is lifelong growth and expansion of the abundant connections through which neurons communicate. Neuroplasticity refers to the brain's continuous capacity to generate new neural networks in response to stimuli. The expression, neurons that fire together, wire together, refers to the process by which the brain constructs neural networks. The increased strength of the connections between neurons that sustain memory derives from the repeated activation of those networks. Every recalled memory or memory-directed pattern activates electrical signals, which is the firing from neuron to neuron, to stimulate a constructive process that strengthens the memory circuit. The neuroplastic response includes the building of more neural connections, as well as the thickening of the layers of the insulation around existing connections. And this thickening of the, the insulation is called myelin. 
The addition of layers of myelin around the axons increases the speed of information travel and protects the circuit from being easily eroded through disuse. Through the neuroplastic response, the brain strengthens the circuits used most frequently, enhancing their speed. Strengthening and speeding neuron-to-neuron communication provides longer-term durability and access. That is, memories are assessed and retrieved more efficiently, and they last longer. For example, when children are learning to tie their shoes, they repeatedly practice the steps. In so doing, the associated neurons repeatedly activate in sequence, strengthening the circuit of connected neurons each time. Practice results in the establishment of a shoe-tying network. The abundance of dendrites, enhanced by thick layers of insulating myelin around the axons, allows that behavior to become increasingly efficient and eventually automatic. Through neuroplasticity, the brain is molded by experience to reshape and to recognize itself so that we awake with a new brain each morning. How cool is that? A brain is constantly changing, growing, forming. And that's why when we go into the classroom as teachers, we're literally changing their brains. Another side of neuroplasticity beyond building and strengthening connections is known colloquially as the use it or lose it phenomenon. Without the stimulation of the electrical activity generated by use of a network, there is a gradual loss of connecting dendrites and a thinning of the myelin, eventually leading to their dissolution or pruning. Now, as teachers, we're very familiar with this mental pruning in a form that is often referred to as the summer slump, right? They learn it and they take the summer, they come back, where did it all go? It's gone. Because without regular use, students are likely to forget what has been previously taught and will require a considerable review and even reteaching to reacquire the student's previous learning. Another example of pruning is when we don't remember the foreign language we studied in high school if we don't use it regularly. I mean, how many of us has that happened to? We took four years of it, maybe in college, high school, maybe even took a study abroad. We spoke it pretty well, and now we can't remember it because we didn't use it. Use it or lose it. That pruning happens. Although it may seem unproductive for the brain to prune things that have been learned, remember the brain's high metabolic demands. Without this pruning, the brain's limited resources will be spread too thin to support its efficient operation. Remember, it's very efficient. If we need it and we're using it a lot, it spends all its energy on that. If we're not using it, why take up that space? Why waste it? So they just get rid of it. It's been pruned. Okay, now let's talk about the hippocampus. Next to the amygdala is the hippocampus. Here, your brain links new sensory input to both memories of your past and knowledge already stored in the long-term memory to make new um, relational memories. These new memories are now ready for processing in your prefrontal cortex. So your prefrontal cortex contains highly developed nerve communication networks that process new information through what are called executive functions. And this would be like judgment, analysis, organizing, problem solving, creativity, planning. The executive function network can convert short-term relational memories into long-term memories. 
So when you are focused and in a positive, a controlled emotional state, your executive functions can more successfully organize newly coded memories into long-term knowledge. So new memory construction takes place after new sensory information leaves the amygdala and enters the brain structure called the hippocampus. Now, the hippocampus is derived, the name, from the Greek word for seahorse because that part of the brain resembles a seahorse. Now, this structure is where new sensory intake connects to a bit of pre-existing memory and consolidates from immediate into short-term memory. So, memory is stored in separate hemispheres of the brain based on the sensory modality, you know, where you watched it, you visioned, or you heard it. And so, this is how it was experienced. Now, these multiple storage areas are all linked by dendrites and axons. Now, the brain can develop stronger and extended memory circuits when new learning is connected to multiple circuits. You know, it recognizes the common threads among all those. And it's also if you use multiple sensory modalities. So if a student learns something through vision, hearing, and movement, they're going to learn it much better than if they just learned it from one of those, because there's going to be more dendrites, those connections from all of those different inputs. So this is why as teachers, we try to break it up to different, you know, learning areas. We try different approaches with our students to try different things. You know, maybe they watch a movie, then they read about it. Then we'd have a discussion on it. Then maybe we do an activity on it. So it's different areas that are all connecting, building those connections. So storage of memory in neural networks based on patterns, relationships, has evolved into a very effective system in which the brain assesses prior knowledge to enable it to make connections to new information and situations. Activating students' existing relevant prior knowledge takes place when they understand a framework in which the new learning belongs. This awareness guides the brain to recognize connections with existing memory networks in the hippocampus. Knowing how the brain makes connections can help teachers maximize learning in their classrooms, especially because students themselves do not always make connections between what they already know and the new information being taught. That's why we have to bring up that prior knowledge as teachers, get the students to start thinking about it, putting it into their working memory. And then when we hit them with the new stuff, they can link it, they can connect it, right? You know, they can hook it to that old material, which will help them learn it faster. To ensure that there is a related existing memory in the hippocampus to link with the new input, it is essential to help students become aware of their prior knowledge. When new information is presented with some foundational pattern recognized by the brain, memory networks incorporate it more efficiently. For example, when a student's learning about triangles, you can start by reminding them about other shapes in which they are already familiar with, such as squares and circles. So you start the lesson with some previous lesson so that kind of gets it into their working memory. Illustrating how a square can then be cut or folded to create a triangle and how two equal triangles can be put together to create a square promotes the linking of the new triangle to the known square right? The new knowledge to the known knowledge. With a successful pattern match, the new information encodes into a short-term memory circuit. 
So how can we find out what they already know, what prior knowledge? Well, some classes we have prerequisites. They can't take our class until they've taken a previous class. So we know they have that prior knowledge if they pass the class. Some other strategies to ensure activation of prior knowledge include the use of pre-assessments, like I do pre and post tests. You know, you could also do advanced organizers, um, start out with questions, you know, essential questions, concept maps, graphic organizers any of those hook type activities. Such strategies make it more likely that students will link the new information to their prior knowledge so that they can both consolidate and expand those memory circuits. Now, not all activation of memory circuits stimulates the neuroplastic responses equally. Less neuroplastic growth occurs if circuits are activated only by multiple repetitions of the same information in the same format. For example, if you write a word 10 times or solve, you know, equations using the same formula, not really going to be very helpful. We call this rote memorization. Remember, not very effective for our students because this rote memorization produces isolated and somewhat feeble circuits unlinked to other networks. They're doing the same thing. They're not branching it out. This such shallow memories only allow learners to give back what was originally taught. They can't expand it, right? They can't apply it. They mirror the way it was taught. This limits their ability to transfer, that is to apply their learning to new situations beyond the original context in which it was learned. Once encoded, short-term memory requires mental manipulation of the new information. It must be thought about or applied to form richer, deeper connections and ensure its place in long-term memory storage. This is like blooms. We don't want to just stay at the knowledge level. We want them to then take that information and use it, apply it, construct it, analyze it. This builds those different circuits, those different networks, which is going to strengthen it. And it's really going to be true, deep learning. Because without this mental manipulation, the short-term memory fades in less than a minute. Indeed, practice really does make permanent as long as the practice involves active mental manipulation, construction of new ideas, and opportunities to apply the newly acquired knowledge and skills in different ways than they were originally learned. So reviewing and practicing something you've learned can help. Nerve cells, neurons, forge information into memories by sending messages to other neurons through branches. You know, these dendrites that almost touch the branches of each neighboring neuron. It takes lots of connections between neurons to relate each neuron's tiny bit of information to that of other neurons so that all the bits can add up to a complete memory. When you review or practice something you've learned, dendrites actually grow between these nerve cells in the network that holds that memory. Each time you review that knowledge, this mental manipulation increases activity along the connections between nerve cells. Repeated simulations makes the network stronger, just like muscles become stronger when you exercise them. And that makes the memory stay in your brain. Practice makes permanent. So now let's talk about the video games. You know, our students, my kids, Young people, even older people, love video games. What is the hook? I watch my sons spend hours, hours. I have to tell them, shut that off, go to bed. 
If you have children or nephews, nieces, you probably are familiar with this. So let's talk about this video game and how maybe we can use it in our classrooms. What can we do to motivate sustained effort from a stingy brain and improve the mindset of students, especially those who have experienced failure and the erosion of their confidence in school? Well, to answer this question, consider an activity that is popular among many young people and that leads them, despite repeated failures, to persevere. And that is video games. The video game experience models effective learning by the brain and thus offers a guide for effective teaching strategies. In the book, Upgrade Your Teaching, they have identified four elements of this video game model that us as educators can replicate to enhance the learning of our students. Number one, establish a desirable goal. Number two, offer an achievable challenge. Number three, provide constant assessment with specific feedback. And number four, acknowledge progress and achievement en route to the final goal. Okay, so let's talk about these. They mention it in their book, and I'm going to cover it now with you. So a desirable goal. Think about a video game, whether it's saving the earth from an asteroid collision or slaying a dragon or finding a lost treasure. A video game player knows the ultimate goal of the game. Players participate in the game because they enjoy the challenge or because friends or other people who are playing think it's cool. They buy into the goal of the game, even though it is merely fantasy. So in a classroom, we need to make clear at the beginning of a new unit what the goals are and what it will take to achieve them, right? We have to have a desirable goal. The brain self-preservation programming means that it is most likely to apply its resources when it recognizes that the effort will help to attain a desired goal. Accordingly, students will be more likely to engage and make an effort when they have clarity about the learning goal, evidence of its achievement, and an understanding of how a particular goal relates to them. In other words, goal buy-in is a critical component for all learning in order to motivate the brain to focus its attention, apply its energy resources, and persist when challenges arise. Like those that motivate avid video game players, goals need to be clear and relevant for students to have a goal buy-in. So it should have an achievable challenge. So let's talk about that. They mentioned this in the book. Imagine the following scenarios. You're dropped off at the top of a ski resort's steepest run when you are only a beginner. Or you must spend your day on the bunny hill when you are an expert skier. Or you play a game of darts and the target is two feet away. Or you play a game of darts with the target 20 feet away. Or you're a third grade student trying to complete a crossword puzzle designed for adults. Or you're an adult trying to do a crossword puzzle designed for a third grader. You can see the point here. At each of these extremes, you would likely feel either frustrated or bored, depending on your level of mastery in relation to the challenge. Reflecting on those feelings helps us understand the stress students feel if they do not have the foundational knowledge to understand new topic or the skills required by a challenging task. Alternatively, consider how bored you feel when you're asked to spend time on a topic or skill that you have already mastered. So it needs to be an achievable challenge. Engaging video games are designed around levels of difficulty. 
Sometimes they go level one to level 10, and they require progression through appropriate levels of challenge based on player mastery. When playing a game, players are usually working on a task at their appropriate challenge level and can progress only after achieving it. The same model of allowing game players to progress according to their individualized levels of achievable challenge is a key to reducing stress and sustaining motivated effort in the classroom. You don't want it to be out of their reach where they're going to get frustrated, but you don't want it to be so easy that they're bored. We're looking for that sweet spot. And in each student, it's different, which is what makes it very challenging. We have advanced students, and we have those students that may need a little more remedial help, a little extra help to get them started. So achievable challenge means that learning goals are clear and that the learner embraces the expectation that success or mastery is within reach. Applying the video game model to classroom learning means planning goals that students accept as being within their range of potential. There was a famed Russian cognitive psychologist who coined the phrase zone of proximal development to categorize the importance of finding the balance point between learning tasks that are not at all challenging and those that are out of reach. Again, that sweet spot. When learners have opportunities to work toward desirable goals in their individualized levels of achievable challenge, their brains will invest more effort in the task, remain more responsive to corrective feedback, and engage with the focus and perseverance to that what they would do in a video game. So you can think when a student gets frustrated, it's beyond their level, no matter what feedback or help we try to give it, they're done. They've already thrown in the towel. On the other hand, if they're bored and we're trying to get them excited, they know it. They're done so quick. Then they start drifting away, pulling out their phones, wanting to go to the bathroom, You know, maybe get into some disruptive behaviors. So we need to keep our students, they're all different, in that, that zone, okay? That zone of proximal development. Now, a central feature of video games is their feedback system. Players receive constant feedback as they play. They can use that feedback to immediately make adjustments, they can alter their actions, and they can find out if they are successful. Gamers certainly make errors, you know, they make incorrect predictions on their way to mastery, but the most compelling games give feedback and unlimited chances to try again without pressure or the stress of boredom or the hopeless frustration. When their choice or prediction is wrong, they know they will always have another chance. Solo players aren't receiving the negative message that they are, they are alone in their confusion or experiencing the boredom of waiting for a class full of others playing the same game to catch up to their level before proceeding. Without those stressors, they remain comfortable trying other strategies and building skills needed for the designated task. Through experience, they find that despite frequent errors, if they act on feedback and persist, they will eventually improve and make incremental progress toward their goals. This cycle reinforces a growth mindset. When the brain receives the feedback on progress that has been made, the associated memory, skill, or concept networks are reinforced. 
you can emulate the video game model in the classroom by providing your students with regular and timely feedback from formative assessments. Give them feedback. Tell them how they're doing. Get them active in it. And they're going to be at different levels, and that's okay. Keep having other levels for those that are ahead to achieve, and then work with those that need the help to get to those first levels. An acknowledgement of progress and achievement is also important. It's interesting to note that video game players fail to achieve their goal as much as 80% of the time while playing. Well, then you might ask the question, why then do they persevere? Well, video games do not require mastery of all tasks at all levels. Instead, they highlight incremental progress. A player's advancement is noted via points or tokens or graphics. Neurologically, each time a player's progress is acknowledged in the game, a small dopamine release occurs in the player's brain. So when they achieve a level or they shoot the bad guy or they rescue the treasure, they get excited. That encourages them to move on to the next task. The motivation to persevere and pursue greater challenges at the next level stems from the brain seeking another surge of dopamine, which is the fuel of intrinsic reinforcement. This explains why players seek greater challenge at the next level. To keep the pleasure of intrinsic reinforcement going, the brain needs a higher level of challenge because remaining at a level already mastered does not activate the necessary expectation of dopamine and its pleasure. They become bored. They become frustrated. They're no longer interested in the game. So it's got to keep increasing. Much of what makes video games so compelling is the way they continuously give players evidence of the efficacy of their practice and continued efforts essential ingredients for development of a growth mindset. The academic learning model should follow suit. When learners have opportunities to engage in learning tasks at their individualized, achievable levels of challenge and believe that their effort can achieve the goal, they are more likely to persist. When incremental progress is valued, they are more likely to recognize that specific feedback will help them improve toward goal achievement, rather than seeing the feedback as criticism or evidence of failure. The video game model gets at the essence of building growth mindsets fueled by the belief that performance and achievement can improve by using feedback and exerting effort. Students Build the self-confidence and experience the intrinsic satisfaction needed to persevere and confront successive challenges. This is why it's always good that I start with that. When I give tests, start with an easy one. You know, first day, first week, give them some kind of assessment. You know, it's one, it's a good way to tell what they already know, but two, make it an easy one. If everyone gets an A, yay, now they can move up to the next one and the next one. So that's that incremental It's also good to have different levels of homework or activities or packets so that those that are already achieved it can move on and those that still need it can stay. The other things when it comes to projects, chunk it up. Instead of doing one at the end, build it into stages, do at different points, each one building on the other. That way there they get to see their goals, they see their achievements, they see their wins, 
and then they can build on that to get to the next section and then the next section and so on. So in conclusion, the past two decades of brain research have provided insights that have profoundly extended our understanding of how to maximize the brain's development of the neural networks known as executive functions, the foundation for building skills. This research can be applied by us as teachers to optimize learning success for our students. Every class, assignment, and experience reshapes each student's brain through neuroplasticity. Understanding how the brain processes information and changes in response to experiences provides keys to best strategies and interventions that we can use for guiding our learners to sound understanding and durable, transferable, long-term memory. 